All right, we are live. Uh, I'm Jack Farley, joined as always by former senior trader for the Federal Reserve, Joseph Wang, aka Fed Guy. And we have a special guest. Joseph, how about you tell the audience about our special guest? So this guy is one of the best uh, money market analysts on FinTwit. And you guys, if you don't follow him already, you must follow him. Some great insight of what's happening in money markets and banking. And this guy, so we're, he's anonymous, but we see who he is. He is the great analyst DC here. Um, say hi. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, thanks a yeah. lot for the intro. So, and and thanks for accommodating me as an Anon guest. I, I don't know if you've had any before, but I really appreciate it's, it. <laughs> it's our first and we're glad to do it, DC. Could you quickly tell the audience, you know, without revealing who you are, a little bit about your, your background and how you gained familiarity with, with these, you know, abstruse topics? Uh, so I guess quick rundown, I've been kind of in the Without going into too much detail, I've been in the fixed income markets for, for a while, first as a hedge fund credit analyst, and then more in the private credit world, which is where I, where I am right now. And really how I became interested in kind of these money markets and, and rates topics is, well, really through my work and people th people I know, but also joining, um, joining FinTwit and uh, talking to people like Joseph and uh, there's there's just a great community here, and people really try to help each other out and 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 try to learn as much as possible. So um, I'm I'm learning. I'm also posting, and I'm happy to share what I've what I've learned so far with you guys. <laughs> and, and just so you guys know, uh, DC also has a Substack that he updates sometimes, and there's a lot of good information on it, just teaching you about money markets and how some of the financial system works. So if you guys who haven't seen it before, definitely check it out. Yes, definitely. We'll put a link in that description. DC, the first topic I want to ask you is why are banks buying fewer treasuries? Uh, uh, they've bought a lot of them since QE started in, in 2020 or the next level of, of QE, but now they're sort of slowing down their, their pace of buying both treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. What was it that made you first notice it? Why is it significant and how do you think it's going to play out? Well, I mean, there there was a big um, mechanical factor that was really causing banks to buy treasuries throughout the past two years or so, and that was simply the fact that their their balance sheet was growing so much, and that was that was coming, um, well, primarily from from fiscal spending from the treasury. The treasury spent out checks, those added reserves to one side of the bank's balance sheet, um, and added deposits to the other side. Um, now, deposit deposit rates were basically at at zero, and so was the the interest rate on on reserves on, up until very recently. So, um, for for the banks, really um, at the basic level, that transaction was just uh, taking up space on the on their balance sheet. Really, it, it wasn't there was there was no no yield on any either side. So, um, they wanted to do something if if they wanted to make money. Uh, they would have to would have to buy buy some assets and um, well those assets can be loans that they can make or they can be other securities but really over the past two years they were or not entirely but a large a large fraction of them were very safe securities so U.S. Treasuries and and government agency securities um, so that that played out over kind of the last two years or so really from March. Uh, 2020 to more or less present, but now since the since the fiscal impulse is gone and the the, the rapid growth really on both sides of the bank's balance sheet is is gone, uh, there's not as much momentum there anymore. Like some of the smaller banks are are still buying treasuries, but not really very much, and the large banks not really at all. So 
um, that is that is mostly faded away now. So I'm going to put up a chart that that you flagged. Tell us what we're seeing here, and then I want Joseph to weigh in. Uh, yeah, so this is just the monthly changes. Um, so the blue bars are are Treasury securities of um, all just all commercial banks in in the U.S. data set, um, and the the red bars are are uh, mortgage backed agency securities. So uh, and that's that's very much the effect that, that we talked about there. So and there was there was some um, some volatility at the start of um, of the pandemic when it just hit in in March of, of 2020, and then from there on out, you saw the banks very consistently, basically every single month, adding treasury to agency securities as the cash come in, as the cash came in. But towards kind of heading into 22, uh, that has now come down to pretty much normal levels. Yeah, I think I think something just to keep in mind the background and DC mentioned this is that so a bank at a very high level, it's kind of like a, a, a supermarket in the sense that it only has so much store shelf. And you think you think of that what they call that balance sheet, uh, basically balance sheet space. And so for a given amount of capital or uh, let's say equity, so they can only hold so much stuff. So they have so much shelf space. Now, when, when the Fed and Treasury are working together, they're filling their shelf space with a lot of cash, which is low yielding. And as DC mentioned, what they're basically doing is they're trying to upgrade that cash to something that's yielding a little bit higher, but also um, high quality so it stays within their regulations. So they're basically swapped out of cash with comparatively high quality securities like Treasuries and uh, agency MBS, which is slightly less, but about the same. And you, you saw them do that the whole basically post-COVID. And a lot of people wonder, who, who are all these people buying treasuries? And it was the commercial banks that emerged as a marginal buyer in, in the uh, post-COVID world. You see that most obviously in the big GSIBs. And you know, DC has flagged this before. If you look at their um, press conferences, they'll tell you, Bank of America, for example, you know, cash flows in, um, we, buy, we, buy, we buy securities. Until, of course, uh, the past quarter. And why has that changed? Either of you can take this one. Why has that changed? And to what degree does that have to do with monetary tightening, either quantitative tightening the balance sheet or raising rates? Um, yeah, so kind of the, the most um, direct reason why, why that's changed is, is deposits are, are simply not, not growing that much anymore. If you kind of look at the... Um, even the most recent bank numbers that are coming that are coming out this week, you look at deposit growth from Q4 of 2021, and it's it's there, there's a little bit, but it's it's very it's very marginal. So really, they um, one of the reasons is they um, they have no more cash or no more cash that they readily want to deploy into into treasuries. And part of the other reason is uh, that that loan demand has has started to come back a little bit in. Um, Kind of gradually, but 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 rising. So, um, the banks, uh, some of the banks at least, have found that that is that is a better place, that is a better yield to to deploy their cash than to than to just buy securities, right? Yeah, I think I think the the past week, Bank of America has basically said the same thing, and GP, well, GPM has some macro view about rates going higher, but basically loan demand has been going higher, and like DC mentioned, so. I mean, if you're a bank and you have so much shelf space, so much balance sheet, you want to be able to optimize it to have higher yielding assets, right? So sure, securities are better than cash at the Fed, but even better is, is to have loans. And it looks like there's loan demand now. Like, So 
going forward, banks might not be as big a purchaser in treasuries as, as they were before. Which leads to our next topic, which is how this period of quantitative tightening is going to be different than previous ones. DC, I know you have a specific view that if and when cracks start to form because of this this instance of the Fed's reducing its balance sheet, it will be very different than the quantitative tightening of 2018. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, so really what has happened, and this has happened kind of in multiple stages, kind of going back to even the pre-08 crisis era, is that the amount of outside money within the system has grown and the reach of the Fed in um, through which it can deploy this outside money to, to, to fix emerging problems in the system has also grown. So before 2008, the system was growing really rapidly. The, the world was, was globalizing and GDP was growing. Um, but, but there was relatively little um, outside money in that in terms of money uh, liabilities of the Federal Reserve. Res, uh, reserve balances were, were very low, around a few dozen billion, right? Um, and, and most most of um, what really functioned as money in, in, the, in the system there was, was inside money, was intra, intra-system money. And as as we turned the cycle through the through the OA crisis into into 2018, the um, well, the Fed grew the balance sheet and also extended some tools um, to, to backstop um, just uh, some of the funding markets. Uh, but uh, repo specifically was was still um, somewhat outside of the reach of, of the Federal Reserve, and we saw that during um, during 2019 as the Fed needed to intervene into the intradealer repo market to stop repo rates from spiking in September. Um, but as, as the 2020 crisis also passed, the system took kind of a fe- further evolutionary step. And now there's, there's even more risk-free money within the system. The Fed's balance sheet is even bigger and the Fed has even more reach. So it has uh, the standing repo facility. It has um, the FEMA repos, uh, the standing effect um, swaps. So it has much more guardrails in terms of the the overnight market, especially um, onshore in the U.S. To some degree, also uh, offshore through the through the foreign central banks. Um, but the guardrails in terms of the repo market are just much much stronger right now, and the the liquidity at the banks is also a lot higher than it was in 2018. So as that starts tapering off, what we might see is, well, we'll see financial conditions tighten and we might see things get a little bit more tough in peripheral markets. But in terms of the the kind of core of the overnight funding market within the US system, the the Fed has just much more control over that than it did even a few years ago, right? DC, you're talking about the new standing repo facility, right? Yeah, so for, for you guys who don't know, the Fed has this new standing repo facility that's basically willing to lend basically unlimited amounts of money into the repo market through the primary dealers. I think in theory, the limit is like $500 billion, but that's the way that the Fed does things is they don't want to ever say unlimited. They just pick a really big number. And if it really gets close to a really big number, they will pick even bigger number. <laughs> that's what happened with the RFP. I think it was 30 and then 16. Now it's like a really big number. So 1.7 trillion. Always assume that these are unlimited numbers. <laughs> so, right, there we if go. you don't, if you, so if you don't think that the um, the repo market, the the, the plumbing uh, is so, so for you guys who are 
you know, following along at home, what DC first of all channeled the the framework by Perry Merling and Zoltan Poster of Inside Outside Money, and was thinking first of all in, in the pre financial world, pre GFC world, there was a lot of money that was basically inter inter interbank, so banks lending to each other. Post GFC, that that's not the case anymore. So banks don't lend to each other as much, and so that there's more dependent upon outside money. So dependent upon things like money market funds and now the Fed as a as a as supporter to that. Um, interbank interdealer system, but if if that's you know totally safe, what should we be worried about um, when it comes to QT going forward? So um, things that that markets that would be affected, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, most directly, you have the kind of peripheral funding markets, right? So that would be kind of FX swaps, commercial paper, LIBOR, really, which is kind of. Uh, based off of those to some extent, since it's all the same banks really funding in those markets. Uh, and those those would probably widen. But um, I mean, really, the, the question comes down to, right, is, um, and, and this was what, what happened in, in March of 2020 also, was, was the treasury markets, is can we, can we maintain the kind of orderly trading of treasury coupons? Um, as as QT as QT shrinks reserves and also as Treasury issues remains fairly high, and I know Joseph, you have you have views on this. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, no, so I I get the sense that we we probably have some similar view on this, and and that the, the fragility really is probably in the Treasury market. Um, if you really think about it, I mean it's a market that grows by literally over a trillion every year. That's that's just insane. Um, there, there's no way there's enough liquidity that can scale in proportion to that issuance. So uh, that that I think that itself implies fragility. You don't really see it unless you know there's there's some kind of panic. Then then you see it very clearly, like you did in March 2020. Um, I mean, if you just look at just the amount of daily cash treasury trading with reference to outstanding, that it's it's not scaling anywhere near the same proportion. Outstanding is growing like you know over the past 20 years by seven times. Cash trading has only grown by less than less than double. So, uh, when people want to sell, there's there's just so much out there that it, there's no way the market can can hold that. And there's a lot of other factors too that seem to suggest fragility. I mean, for the people who care about things like inflation, for example, it looks like it might be structurally higher. And we have a go ahead, go ahead. Oh, actually, question there. So I, I know we were we were talking before we went live about the the BOJ and about yeah. uh, the, their yield curve. And uh, do you think if if such an event were to happen, it could be a test of of the U.S. Treasury market in the post twenty twenty era to see if no. it can withstand those kind of shocks? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I saw your post today, or uh, maybe yesterday, about um, just the BOJ. What happens if they would let go of the Yukon control? So uh, as we all know, so yields throughout the world are going higher. The BOJ is resisting that. That makes the interest differential between Japan and outside of the US or the Eurozone ever wider. And so that's leading to a massive, massive uh, implosion of the Japanese yen. I mean, it's basically going parabolic. And eventually, you know, the BOJ is going to be like, you know, that's that's enough. I think I have enough depreciation. Uh, Maybe I'll get my inflation that I finally want. Okay, they're going to have to stop that. The way to stop that, of course, is to let their yields um, go higher a little bit so that the, the interest rate gap is not as large. They're going to have to reevaluate yield curve control. And let's say they go by 25 basis points to 50. Uh, that, that sounds reasonable, right? So 
when that happens though, because the global bond market, it's all connected together, that discrete, discrete jump in 25 basis points, it's going to pass through throughout the global bond markets. And that's, a, that's going to be a pretty big shock, especially when you have, you know, already yields are very low, not just, okay, so the US is okay, but look, think about the Eurozone. A lot of um, Japanese investors actually buy like say French oats and buns. And so they're going to be evaluating between these higher level JGBs and whatever they're offering in the Eurozone that might feed through. And that's going to be a big loss for them because their yields are already so low. Um, you mean that you know the duration is very high, so I think that that will be a very big shock for for um, the global bond markets, including the treasury markets. I, I think it could potentially be dis disorderly. I mean, that's a very that would be a very big discrete move. So um, I think that's definitely something that that we should think about in the future because it, the yen can't go on like this forever, right? So eventually, the BOJ is going to have to call call quits, and so we have some kind of yield shock. Uh, maybe in the near future. I don't know. What do you think the VOJ is shooting for? Is there, do you think 130, 135, 150? Or maybe they just don't know. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, you, you also think that the that, that it has to do with the, spe with the speed of the move. Um, if, if uh, let's say, US, uh, USDN were to stay at, at 130 steady from here on out, the BOJ could probably live with that. But the the speed at which we've gotten from 110 to 130 is that that might might make them panic, right? Or well, not panic, but but feel like they need to do something. <laughs> so, what well, what could they do? I mean, they could talk it down for sure. But unless they're willing to, let's say, be a little bit more flexible about their yield curve control. It, it doesn't seem like the market w would care. I mean, I, I'm hearing, I'm seeing headlines saying about, you know, the officials at the Ministry of Finance there noticing this, but, you know, it doesn't seem to be working. And the way that momentum is building, it seems like we're accelerating. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of people, retail and institutional momentum changers who, who are just going to push this until it goes to the moon. And so, yeah, when so much leverage builds, it's probably going to be disorderly when it stops. But do you, do you, do you think that it, like 135, 140, 150, 130? Do you think I've, they have a Do you think they have a goal? I've heard 130 mentioned as kind yeah. of a, a line in the sand, but that is really that's that's the market's guess, right? And and some people in the market are saying 130. Maybe some people in the market are saying 135. But um, you have to get, think if the if the move keeps mo moving as quickly as it has been, they're, they're going to have to do something sooner rather than later, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the speed definitely would be very disorderly. But I, I just I just don't know how what they can do to make it slow down. I mean, Kuroda just said at this next meeting, we like depreciation, but can you do it slower? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe they'll have a, a Bank of Japan governor say, be very extra devilish, and they say we sh we need 160, sort of a, a Bullard type. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that would be crazy, really. Joseph yeah. CG in the comments asked, "Who is going to buy all of these treasuries?" And that's a great question because, you know, how much does the Fed have to reduce its balance sheet by two trillion, three trillion? There's a lot of treasuries that it has to dis make disappear, and a lot of mortgage-backed securities. And that's mortgage-backed securities have its own problem that that we're going to get to later, but. Just who's going to answer, who, who's going to buy all those treasuries? There's money market funds where, Joseph, you have a lot of expertise. There's hedge funds. There's households. There's banks. 
Uh, there's the Treasury, which you know, has to issue more in order to, to refinance its debt. But uh, uh, I think we have a real treat for the audience because, DC, on Twitter, you flag... And by the way, I just want to say, everyone should follow analyst DC on Twitter. He's a great follow. And while they're at it, they should it's follow, great. subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel uh, so you can get more videos just like this. But uh, DC, you flagged uh, a paper by the blog for the New York Fed, Liberty Street Economics, where they outlined a series of scenarios about what a balance, what the Fed's balance sheet normally looks like, and then what it looks like if the banks were to buy them, what it looks like if the money markets were to buy them. And uh, I just want, can you just walk us through uh, that scenario? Because I, I made a few screenshots that we can, uh, you know, uh, look at them. Yeah, sure. And and I would would highly recommend people go and, and read the blogs. They're they're the blog posts. They're not very long, and they're they're quite informative to kind of think how the how how the the Fed thinks about this. But but really the the um, fundamentally it's it's an arithmetic problem, right? The the Fed is is a bank and it has a balance sheet, and the two sides need to match up, right? So if the Fed reduces the the assets on one side, it also reduces the liabilities on the other side by by the same amount, and the liabilities are made up of liabilities to commercial banks and and liabilities to money market funds. So it's kind of uh, um, there's a bit of uncertainty there exactly where the the reduction is going to come from. But just just by the balance sheet arithmetic, either money market fund liabilities or um, liabilities to banks must must be reduced. So yeah, these these are the charts, right? Yep, and money MM, MMF is money market fund. So this is the initial conditions. This is what happens during the Fed's balance sheet roll-off. It's not selling securities, it's just letting them expire or roll off. So minus $1 in terms of an asset uh, for its assets, but it also has one fewer of its uh, liability because, uh, well, Joseph, how about you save me? T- tell us what's going yeah, on. Yeah, so yeah, actually, <laughs> the, the, the two blog posts mentioned by DC, check them out. They were written by my former colleagues at, on the Open Markets Desk. So. Um, I think on a high level, what you can think about is that so the Fed has a whole bunch of treasuries and it, it want, they're going to roll off. So what's going to happen? How, how The treasury is going to have to repay the Fed. Now, how does the treasury going to do that? The way the treasury is going to do that is it's going to issue new treasury securities to the private sector and then take that money and repay the Fed. And who ultimately ends up buying those newly issued treasuries? in large part determines on what kind of treasuries the U.S. Treasury Department will issue. This is really important because treasuries come in different types and each type has a different investor base. If you issue short-term treasuries, treasury bills, basically uh, treasuries that mature within a year, it's largely money market funds, uh, like the MMFs on the lower right side. Uh, or if you issue longer dated, uh, let's say coupons, tens, uh, sorry, 10s, 20s, 30s, that's a different investor base altogether. And so uh, the U.S. Treasury is going to have to decide how they, they're they going to issue. Um, I mean, I think if we issue money in the money market space, issue Treasury bills, I think basically the money market funds will gobble them all up, right? Right. So just so people can see on the upper right hand, now it says cash held at the Fed minus $1 for the Treasuries. That's a problem. So all of the following scenarios you're going to see are a solution to the problem that the treasury doesn't have any money. So let's see, this is if the banks buy them. Uh, DC, do you feel comfortable running us through this? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, if if the banks yeah buy 
um, but, uh, by the treasuries, that, that means the banks have a checking account with the Fed, which is, which is their reserve account, and they, they spend money out of that at either a treasury auction or, or buying them on the open market, and then their, their, um, the cash in their checking account goes down. They, they have a, a treasury on their balance sheet now, and, and um, yeah, the treasury gets the money that it needs to, to repay the Fed. Right. So the size of the commercial bank balance sheet does not change, but the composition does. It has a greater yep. percentage of treasuries and a fewer percentage of reserves. And now the next one is if money markets purchase uh, treasuries. All right, Joseph, you're the resident money oh, market expert. Oh, so you so gotta... this, this is what I was just saying. So basically, money the money market fund takes money out of the, looks like here, out of the RRP and uses to buy treasuries. Uh, so the so the money goes out of the RRP into the U.S. Treasury's checking account, and then the U.S. Treasury takes that money and sends it to the Fed, which gets canceled, right? So at the end of the day, the Fed's balance sheet shrinks because it doesn't have fewer reserve, fewer own RRP liabilities, and no more treasuries. Um, but the private sector holds more treasury security liabilities. Oh, yeah. So treasuries, assets for the private sector, liabilities for the U.S. Treasury. It's at the end of the day, basically, someone steps in the Fed's place and holds those treasuries, someone in the non-Fed. You can think of it as private sector, but you know it's also possible that foreign official accounts, uh, like a foreign reserve manager, holds it. So it's not, strictly speaking, uh, private sector. But someone that's not, not the Fed is going to have to hold, over the next three years, $3 trillion more in treasury securities, because that's the target of, of um, the Fed. It seems like they're targeting a $3 trillion in QT. So um, that's a lot of treasuries that, that someone that's not the Fed is going to have to hold. And the question is, what price are they going to have to hold it at? And can they do it in an orderly way? What do you think, Joseph? Uh, yeah. So, you know, like, so, you know, the in the post uh, COVID world, like DC was showing that it was the commercial banks gobbling up a lot of that issuance. And now just, you know, we just, we're just ending, um, bank earning calls and you just had Chris Whalen on a great show, you know, banks, banks are saying that they're not really interested in buying these securities anymore. They're interested in making loans. So banks seem to be out of the picture. So, okay, who's next? Now, we're, I'm just assuming that it's not all going to be in T-bills because if it is, then money market funds will gobble it up. Now, if you look past them, I think the next group of people that are big holders of treasuries are foreigners. And that's divided into foreign officials. So, central reserve managers, like let's say the PBOC, or private sector foreign investors, let's say Japanese life insurers. Um, but there are two things that are happening that that are making it, I think, in my view, that they probably won't step up. One is that, well, we saw the US confiscate Russian um, reserves. So, you know, if, if you're a foreign reserve manager, maybe you're, you don't want to hold all your money into treasuries. That's not safe. And the second thing that's happening is that the Fed is raising short-term interest rates. So if you're like a life insurer and you're buying treasuries, you have to hedge the FX uh, the FX uh, changes a little bit. And the way you hedge that is you use the money uh, the FX swaps where rates are based on money market rates. So that's going to be really expensive. So your FX hedge value of treasuries, FX hedge return is going to be really low going forward. So maybe it's not that attractive to you. So... You have new buyers. It just seems, in my view, that they're going to need a lot higher return. Do you see what do you what do you think? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mainly agree with that view, and that there there are there are buyers. Uh, bonds will always find buyers at a high enough yield. It's kind of a, a thing, a property of bonds. If people don't like them, the yields go up. Um, but but uh, yeah, at at this level, it's it's hard to say that there there really there is a real money bid. If you've been looking at the bond market lately over the over the past few weeks, they've been going down and, and down and down and really kind of all signs of strength have been faded. So um, the one wild card that I that I see is the the relative value community. So relative value hedge funds do take down a portion of treasury issuance and, and they did a lot more of that in, in 2018, 2019. And they they fund themselves in the repo market and, and they they go out and they buy treasuries on leverage to arbitrage relative value spreads that they can find, right? Um, so especially with um, kind of sponsored repo growing a lot in the in the repo market now. These um, these hedge funds can get funding from the money market funds. They can they can drain cash from the RRP. And I think it's it's a big wild card how much relative value activity we're going to see. But besides that, I would agree. Yeah, like treasuries will find buyers at higher yields, but those yields are probably that they haven't shown up yet, at least. That's a really good point. So. If it, Fed, the Fed actually has a special data series that shows like treasury holdings of hedge funds. It's based on form PF, which is like a super confidential form that very, very few people see. And from, I think, 20 pre and post COVID, the hedge fund community, I think, took down their treasury exposure by almost like a trillion dollars. So they definitely, definitely shrink away from that relative value trade. And I mean, obviously, they probably went broke in March 2020. So that that obviously hurt. And so that, that but that, that does show that there's capacity for them to to get back in. And especially since rate vol is high, there, there might be more dislocations. And um, for you, for those of you at home who are not familiar, what, what happens in this in these basis trades is that let's say a hedge fund will sell uh, treasury futures and buy a cash treasury and funded by repo. And then they would deliver that cash treasury into the uh, futures contract. Um, to harvest the base, to harvest the dislocation. So, uh, because they're doing that trade, they're, they're buying cash treasuries funded in repo, as DC mentioned. Um, the only thing that I would I would note about that is that there is a, some ca- capacity. The repo has a certain capacity limit, and sponsored repo widens that a bit. But if you look at the data, it's, it seems like it's not as widely used in the buy side community, uh, not just yet. But it so. If you have so much issuance, the levered community, I think, can definitely take out, in theory, a large chunk. But um, th- there's a limit to that based on balance sheet constraints. And it's not sure. It's not clear just if they'll hit it or not. So I guess we'll find out in the coming months. Yeah. So Joseph and DC, your thesis, it sounds like the Federal Reserve is going to have to release trillions of dollars of uh, uh, treasuries from its balance sheet. And who's going to have to handle that? Well, banks, the bank, banks are shrinking their balance sheets at the same time. So they're going to have to allocate a lot less capital treasury. So the, the market price for treasuries will be lower and the, the yield will be higher. My question is, why are you confident that banks will allocate their shrink, uh, shrunken balance sheet to, towards commercial loans and consumer loans, industrial loans, and sort of the real economy stuff? rather than just buy treasury. Doesn't that depend on the profitability of those loans? And doesn't that profitability of those loans depend on both consumer demand for loans, 
which if you looked at Bank of America, it wasn't terribly high. Consumer demand, uh, uh, industrial and, and business loans demand was high. And also the economy. Like if if the economy, if we enter a recession, will will banks be will? I think banks will want to buy a lot more treasuries during a recession, right? Well, I mean, so I think I think I hear this line a, a lot, and I think I would make a distinction between, let's say, real growth and nominal growth. I mean, you could a recession by definition is you have less output or you know it's your lower real growth, right? But you could if inflation is high, then you you would still have nominal growth, and it may not make sense. I mean, I mean, rates would go higher, so you wouldn't buy churches. Betting that betting that rates will go lower because you have inflation. There's this is difference between nominal and, and real. Um, but I, I think that banks are seeing more loan demand, and they seem to be wanting to hold more loans rather than treasuries. I think in the eurozone, I mean, time-tested thing for banks to do is to just buy lots of sovereign debt, in part because they have to, because you know the government makes them do that. But it's also high-yielding if you're in a periphery nation. I'm going to set a follow-up question, which is, what about the common equity tier ratios mandated by Basel? If they get to a certain threshold, wouldn't there be a level where they can't deploy any more capital to risk assets without buying safe stuff like reserves or, or treasuries? So that's a different thing. So capital is a liability. So you know, you'd have to issue more, uh, let's say, equity or longer term debt. Uh, DC was actually just talking about this. It seems like banks are issuing a lot more, uh, let's see, uh, subordinated secured, uh, subordinated unsecured debt, which is like tier two capital and maybe preferreds uh, potentially to have more balance sheet space. Is, is that, am I saying, am I, is that what's happening, DC? Yeah, I think we were talking uh, earlier today, it was about the, the loss absorbing capacity, right? So the, the banks, um, and when you when you look at the the assets versus the liabilities, right? There is there is a buffer of of capital, but there there's also some of the liabilities have the ability to be bailed in, right? So those are some subordinated bank bonds that in in case that a bank did come under stress could be converted into equity, and th that's uh, there's there's a, there's a rule on that the the TLAC rule, the total loss absorbing capacity. Um, and, and the banks need to maintain a certain percentage of their total assets and their um, risk-weighted assets as loss-absorbing capacity. So if, if they start running low on that, they, they might need to issue more of those subordinated bonds, right? And, and I, I think a few of them have been doing that recently. So that could, in theory, give them more balance sheet to buy treasuries, to, mm -hmm. like, like Jack suggested. So maybe that is part of the plan. But, you know... Ultimately, you know, the, the people who run the system, they can rig it. So one thing they could do, of course, is just exempt treasuries from their SLR, right? Then they could just, banks could just buy as much as they want. And, you know, it seems like an easy fix. Didn't they do that already, the, the SLR? Oh, temporarily. Temporarily, but, yeah. It's, it's, it'd be a very bad policy, but they could do it if they wanted to have a bid in the treasury market. Yeah. Uh, yes, DC, go ahead. The other thing about we were talking about the banks and and the money market funds earlier, and the other thing with, with that is the banks and the money market funds they compete with each other, right? So if the bank, bank, money market funds can can offer higher yield than say a bank can offer on deposits, the deposits will go from from one pocket to the other, right? And and banks will lose reserves, and money market funds will gain assets. Um, so a, a, a lot of 
kind of the bank's balance sheet future depends on where they go, uh, where they go, and how competitive they are on on deposit rates. And from from what I've seen so far in Q1 uh, guidance, is most banks are fairly sure they're not going to move deposit rates for the first four hikes of the hiking cycle, roughly. After that, I'm, I'm, I, I don't think they know, honestly. I, I think they'll probably wait and see. But at least for the first um, 100 basis points of hiking, most of them are pretty confident that they'll keep deposit rates at zero. So we'll have to see how much people are willing to move their deposits away from banks to seek out alternatives. And, and that will, will also be a factor that, that determines what the banks can do. So I think Bill, Bill Nelson, I, I, for, I believe he's, he used to be the senior person uh, at the Fed. He, he had a comment once, and I thought it was very interesting, that when the Fed raises rates, it could actually potentially make the RRP go higher because, you know, if, as, as you're mentioning, DC, that, you know, banks keep their interest rates at, their, their deposit rates at zero, a lot of money goes out of the banks into the money funds and maybe into the RRP. And so you could have this weird scenario where everyone's thinking that, you know, Fed is going, QT is going to drain the RRP when in con- and the opposite happens because the Fed is hiking rates, the RRP becomes more attractive, money funds become more attractive, and so more money actually pours in. So it's, it's not completely set in stone what will happen. I think it's unlikely because, well, I mean, that did not happen last time, but could. We've got a comment from CG who says, sounds like bank stocks are going to get wrecked. Uh, I actually was, yeah, I was, I was speaking to Chris Whalen. He's actually pretty bullish on the banks. And I think the deflationary view that I envisioned, oh, there's no loan growth, they're all going to buy treasuries, that scenario is bearish for the banks. But I want to hear, Joseph, your, and sounds like DC's too, where yields all across the, the, the uh, yield curve go up and banks are buying fewer treasuries, they're making loans. Is that, is that bearish for the banks or is it not? Well, I think DC is, has a few Twitter posts on on his on his uh, thesis on the financial, so I'll let him share that. Yeah, I mean the um, so question about the 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 banks, right? Is um, the quality well? Number one, the quality of their assets, and number two, how much income they they they're able to to generate off of them, and. Um, the, the the net interest margins that they're earning are still quite historically low. They collapsed during during 2020, and some of them have have come off the lows a little bit. But by historical standards, banks' net interest margins are are still quite low. And part of the, what, one of the reasons for that is that first of all, the um, the banks have been flooded with with deposits since um, since 2020. Um, uh, deposits have grown across the board by like 50%. So, and, and since, since there weren't really many high yielding opportunities during that time, much of that, much of that growth in, in deposits has been invested into fairly low yielding assets at the front end, right? Most bank net interest income is in relatively short term duration. People um, might have this conception that banks borrow short and lend long, but they, they don't, they don't actually lend that long. Maybe, uh, if you can you can look at the the duration of average duration of of bank portfolios it's it's not very high maybe two three years right um, so the um, as as rates as rates rise 
the 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 margin is going to expand, but how much it expands really depends on how low they are able to keep deposit rates and still maintain very stable funding, right? Um, so the the or kind of if if you are bullish financials, you would believe that as short term rates rise, the banks will start making more money off of that and make continue to do that for longer than the market currently believes, right? So you probably believe that short-term rates will rise and stay higher for longer, right? And just just to emphasize your point that banks kind of lend short, I mean, like JP, JP Morgan has a few hundred billion dollars of sitting in cash in the Fed. That's like ultra short. That's overnight lending, right? And all of that is going to go, the interest on that is going to go up one-to-one -one with every Fed hike. So if we're at, let's say, 300 basis points at year end, then that's 300 basis points more on in interest income. And I mean, I agree with you that deposit rates probably won't go high very much. So that that's just widening, widening the nib mechanically significantly too. Yeah, I will say it does depend on the bank. For example, the example I like to give is in a year ago in the first quarter of 2021, the net interest yield for Bank of America was 1.68%. And now, now that treasury yields have risen, you know, 200 basis points or higher, it's 1.69%. So it's gone up one basis point. So it, it does take a, a while for these things to kick in. And it does, as you said, DC, depend upon banks' ability to keep financing costs low. And it's interesting you said that banks are intending to do so. So that means if any viewers are out here, you know, saying Fed funds rate is going to be 3%, therefore I'm going to get 3% uh, you know, deposit rate on my checking savings account, you may have to wait a little bit longer. Um, I'm still zero. <laughs> I've never been above zero ever, actually. <laughs> yeah, me neither, I mean, actually. The other thing there is that banks can be asset or liability sensitive, right? Nowadays, pretty much all of the banks are, are asset sensitive. Their um, rates rising is mostly a benefit to them since it, it increases the rates on their assets while not really increasing the rates on their deposits so much. But say if you look 20 years ago, it was much more of a mixed playing field in terms of which banks were liability sensitive or asset sensitive. Mm -hmm. And and that has, um, so that's that's been a change in the market also. It's not, it's not really a kind of a, a something with that is historically always true that rates rising is good for, for bank margins, right? That's, Very interesting. That, uh, I know we're running, sorry. Uh, okay. uh, Joseph, you go, you go ahead. Uh, that structural change is just the core behind my bullish financials thesis. It's because banks post Basel III don't fund in money markets, so their liability costs don't go higher anymore. They're all retail, basically stuck at zero. So I think that, that kind of fundamentally changes their what happens to their profit, their NIMS when, when rates go higher. So I guess we'll see if that's true as mm. rates go higher. Right. NIMS, net interest margins. DC, I know we said it's going to be 40 minutes. Do you have more time to stay? Uh, if not, it's totally cool. Sure. Sure. Let's go. All right. Great. Uh, let's put a chart up, which is yours, uh, DC, which is the maturity profile of the Federal Reserve's balance sheets. Uh, bills are is in red that is short-term paper less than a year notes and bonds regular treasuries that's in blue and then treasury inflation protectory treasury inflation protected securities and fixed or excuse me floating rate notes are in yellow explain why bills and floating rate securities are important and how that applies to what the fed has indicated it wants for its quantitative tightening 
Yeah. So, okay, first of all, quick disclaimer on this chart. I, I made it in like five minutes in, in Excel, so I, I can't guarantee that it's 100% accurate. I'm, I'm fairly sure it is. Um, and it just shows the, the distribution of the Fed's portfolio of, of treasuries by when they mature. So, for example, in, in this current month of April, we have about $120 billion in, in treasury securities maturing, and about half of them are bills. Um, now, the, the Fed uh, currently is rolling all of those forward. So once they mature, they immediately try to buy as similar of a security as possible in, at, um, at, a, at a rollover in, in, in a rollover auction. And then the, the balance sheet continues as, as before. But once, once QT starts, they, they're saying they, um, they want to allow uh, 60 billion a month to mature without reinvesting them. So, um, Unless they want to sell um, uh, some of some of these some of these treasury securities, they they need to have at least uh, sixty billion maturing per month. And it, it, um, ignoring for now the the tips and and floating rate notes, since since those are a relatively small amount. Uh, if we look just at the notes and bonds, we see for the most part in in most months they they do have about sixty. Where um, and but there are a few cases where they might need. Kind of ten or fifteen billion more. So, um, the question there really is: um, if the Fed has say 40, 40 billion maturing and and one sixty, does it does it sell ten billion more, or does it use the bills? Does it roll over some of the bills and use them to fill in the gaps where it can? Because the bills are very short term, so they can be rolled over basically monthly. And if necessary, the Fed could use those to um, kind of make sure it always has 60 billion maturing or it could sell or it could um, not not worry about the six uh, about the 60 billion and, and just allow however much is maturing to mature. I don't think they'll do that last option. I think they'll most likely try to fill in the gaps by by um, kind of playing with the with the bill rollovers. But happy to hear Joseph's take on that, too. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that was suggested in the minutes. So we're going to have $60 billion in treasuries roll off every single month. That's for the next three years. Whenever we don't have enough, I think we'll just plug it with bills and that's fine. So they've always handled bills a little bit differently. This, I mean, the, last, the, first, the, the last QT didn't have bills roll off. This one is different. They have uh, $330 billion. It looks like they're just going to use it uh, by just you know plugging the gap as DC suggested. So, uh, looks like treasuries are going to be pretty straightforward going going for the next three years. Uh, CMBS might be a little bit different, um, but uh, th- this one looks like it's going to be sixty, s- solidly sixty for each month for going forward. Yeah. So that plugging the hole with the bills would be in May twenty twenty two. The blue bar notes and bonds is well enough. To, to have the $60 billion roll-off. So they'll take some of that red on top, the bills on top of the blue and move that to a month like, I don't know, October 2022, when they need the bills to hit that $60 billion bogey. So that's treasuries. That is enough of a challenge for the Federal Reserve. Let's now talk about mortgage-backed securities, because at least when you own a treasury, Joseph, at least when you own a, a seven-year treasury, DC, you know when it expires. You know what your interest rate risk is. And you can say, hey, well, this is going to expire in 2023, and it, it'll, it'll all be good. However, the Federal Reserve also owns, 
I, you know, I think over $2 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities, which are not like that. People can, you can have a, a five-year mortgage-backed security, suddenly mortgage-backed mortgage, back, mortgage uh, rates increase, and then no one refinances their mortgage. And suddenly what you thought was a five-year mortgage-backed security is now a 12-year mortgage-backed security. And that, if people, you know, connect the dots, that is going to be a huge problem for the Federal Reserve, which has has repeatedly insisted that it will not sell its assets. It will let them roll roll over. Uh, how big of a problem is this, DC? Am I, am I dramatizing things? Am I making mountain out of molehill? Well, um, <laughs> just, it's, it's tricky, right? And, and I would say the... Um, so really, it, it, the, the, the problem comes down to, right, um, is... Uh, like you said, when 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 someone has a mortgage, you you don't know where it, when it's over, right? You you don't know if they'll sell their house and then their their mortgage matures basically upon them selling their house. If they'll refi their house, the, the mortgage is is also matured at that point, and the Fed gets. Um, if if the Fed owns the mortgage backed security, they would receive all the principal at that time. Um, so when the Fed's MBS portfolio matures is is kind of up in the air, depending on home sales and refis, which um, have, have both kind of started falling off from the peak. Um, however, the, so, so, um, so there, there's a question there, um, whether, whether the Fed will be patient and will kind of wait until their, their portfolio matures on its own, or whether they will try to push it along and, and sell some MBS. And there, there's that the, the, the Fundamental issue there is it's a it's a positive feedback loop there, right? It's it's self-reinforcing. If you if you sell um, mortgage-backed securities that that increases the yield on them, that discourages people from selling their house or refinancing them and extends the duration out further, and extending the duration also increases the yield. So it's it's a self kind of propagating cycle. Um, but where where it's also might be actually um, better for, for, for the Fed is that um, because um, QT through the mortgage market is um, has this kind of self-reinforcing effect and because the mortgage market affects everyone and kind of affects everyone's uh, wealth effect very tangibly, um, the mortgage market might mean that the Fed actually doesn't have to do as much if kind of the mortgage market tightens for the Fed, basically by extending the duration of mortgage-backed securities and raising um, mortgage rates and basically discouraging people from selling their house or refiing, and especially refiing, since refiing, if you cash out refi, that is cash that goes directly into consumption, right? Right, so the $35 billion per month, that's the hurdle that the Fed has set for themselves in the same way they've set a $60 billion hurdle for treasuries, so a, a total of $95 billion reduction of its balance sheet per month. Joseph? So the, the New York Fed has this estimate that uh, the mortgages will pay down about $25 billion a month going forward. So it looks like we're going to be short of that cap for the next few years. Um so I think that reserves the possibility. So that so they, they know this, okay? So they know that it's estimated to pay down twenty five billion, but they gave a thirty five billion cap. Uh, that's probably to give them some leeway to sell if they want to. And so they've mentioned the possibility of selling. They they probably won't get to it at least for the first two years, but possibly they could if they wanted to. If for whatever reason they felt mortgage rates were too low or housing was on fire too much, then they could sell it and you know 
maybe that'll have an impact. One thing you guys should keep in mind, though, is that one of the huge unintended consequences of this, and you know, I, I first heard this from Joshua Hartman, who's a real estate analyst. He is that you have all these people who have very low mortgages; they're never going to sell. They're never going to sell because when they sell, that you know, they're, they're going to lose that two point five mortgage, right? So you kind of structurally decrease the supply of housing simply because so many people refied or bought new homes, and you know, if they sell or move somewhere else, they're going to lose that. So uh, I. I I, I think that's probably going to be some kind of unintended consequence going forward. Joseph, correct me if I'm wrong. Did the previous quantitative tightening of 2017, 2018, did that involve any selling or was that no. only rolling off? No. So, so the Federal Reserve has never sold a security other than it's like testing, you know, sell a million here, sell a million there, right? I mean, it's it's done operations, let's say, you know, like twist or something where they, where they do. So they can, but just not for QT. Right. Okay. So, we, but the market is quite unfamiliar with the Federal Reserve calling the market up, and instead of buying, they're selling. That's a quite a different experience. For mortgages, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I. What do you guys think the effect of that is going to be? And then also, what about the fact that uh, Chris Whalen said that some of these coupons are at a two percent coupon issued at. $101. They're now trading at $89 at a $2 coupon, 2 percent coupon. And market makers, they don't even make markets in 2% coupons anymore. That's like kind of bringing a silver dollar to like a bank, you know? Yep. Fed, Fed, Fed is not that stupid. They just won't sell them. They'll sell better ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you also have to keep in mind, right, that the, the, um, Fed will f- is willing to finance these securities, right? Through the through the standing repo facility, the Fed will lend against these securities. So if someone someone has a mortgage-backed security they need to finance, they can they can post it at the Fed for some some repo rate, and and they can they can keep hold it there for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't worry. Yeah, I, I don't worry about that. Um, okay. I I still think the market will blow up before we even get that far. I, I don't know. <laughs> DC, if we have stress in, in the treasury market, I think you seem to share this view. How long do you think it will take? If we, if I, I we, mean, it's hard. It's hard. I I, yeah. I I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, if you if you have an idea, I would think. yeah. Um, and I mean, we we've had a few scary moments in the treasury market, right? Like last um, last year in in February, we had that that one seven year auction that that went much worse than people thought, and the treasury yields uh, kind of went crazy for 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 a little while. And and we've had a, a few other moments, a few other moments like that, right? Where where the treasury market has kind of hit a bit of an air pocket, but um, year, I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, so so far it has not been as big of an air pocket as it was in in March 2020, and in March 2020 that really had to do a lot with kind of hedge fund delevering and and everything that was going on, and the Fed had to buy uh, what was it 700 billion in securities very quickly to, to to fill in that air pocket, right? And if if something kind of similar to that happens again, I I don't doubt that that they'll do the same. Um, but really, it's kind of a question of how much the market is able to withstand until it gets that bad. And um, there, there's reasons to be worried. There's also, I think, reasons to be hopeful. This, they're making moves with um, 
with central clearing and with moving kind of all of repo trading and and treasury clearing to to fix so that that will probably be good somewhat for stability um but yeah if 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 we do hit a kind of a, a really big air pocket, I, I do expect the Fed will be there and we'll have to support the. We'll have to be a dealer in the treasury market again, really. <laughs> DC, Joseph is of the view that uh, yield on the 10-year treasury note could or may hit t- 4% by the end of the year. Are you in that camp or are you higher or, or lower? Um, in that it, it could? Uh, yeah, I think it definitely could. I, I mean, if... If the the Bank of Japan does this thing that 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 we were talking about, it it could go up. I don't know, thirty basis points in a day. Like I I would not be surprised at all to see that, right? So, uh, if if we're kind of um, talking about big moves and talking about volatility and rates, I mean, I think we've definitely seen that already, and I don't see I don't see why it will stop. I think we're going to continue seeing that for a while, really. <laughs> That, that I think that's probably the near-term catalyst because, I, I mean, I fully expect the BOJ to reevaluate their, its YCC ban. I mean, sometime in the coming weeks, uh, or maybe coming months. But they have to, right? I mean, they just can't let the yen just implode like that. So there's going to be a limit, and that's probably going to be the the first test. Um, I I don't know when they'll step in, but it looks like the yen is is going parabolic. So maybe sooner than we think. Uh, people are noticing the comments that Netflix is down 25% after earnings. You know, not related to the plumbing, but it's just a reminder that these discount rates do matter. And you know, the carnage we've seen in the 30-year Treasury yield. You know, maybe if 30-year Treasury yield were still at 1.7%, Netflix would only be down 21%. I don't know. Just, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know anything. Netflix but, uh, is crazy like that. It's always <laughs> up and down, up and down. But wow, that is kind of a big drop. <laughs> that is. It's it's a chunky. Yeah. Uh, DC. Yeah. Uh, this, the name of the show is Forward Guidance, and there is a news event today that we've got to talk about, which is Bullard expressed uh, fondness for a, a 75 basis point interest rate hike, which would be the first one since 1994. He praised Alan Greenspan's decision to raise rates by three quarters, uh, saying that it set up the U.S. economy for a stellar second half of the 1990s. How are, how are you... DC, how are you thinking about a, a triple rate hike? Is that is that in the cards, or is it something that's sort of just a, a, a news thing that he's saying to have the market tighten itself so the Fed doesn't have to do a, a triple rate hike? Well, um, I mean, I, I personally don't think that that triple rate hike will happen in in, in reality, but it is it is a thing in, in in the market's pricing, right? And the market has priced in for the next two meetings, so the May meeting and the June meeting. Has priced in about um, a fifty basis point hike, more or less as a as a sure thing, right? Um, but at that point, it really becomes a, a question of if you're pricing twenty five or fifty, or if you're pricing fifty or seventy five, right? If you take twenty five completely out of the equation, and even if you don't think seventy five is going to happen, if there is a Fed governor talking about it, you kind of have to hedge against that possibility. So if the market shifts from pricing 25 to 50 to pricing 50 to 75, that is an incremental kind of tightening effect. And we saw it today. I mean, if you look at um, interest rate futures, the um, kind of euro dollar whites sold off and Fed funds and, and everything got hit because because Bullard said that. So it, it, it does have kind of an immediate pricing effect on the market, right? <laughs> 
we're, Just, we're going to we're going to levels that are you know approaching like 2018 uh, quarter four but it doesn't seem like the equity market i mean it's coming down but it still seems surprisingly resilient uh, do you have any thoughts on why that that might be dc because i mean the last time we were like this it basically melted down in quarter four of 2018 but it's still going down trending lower but there does seem to be a bid yeah i mean the one thing I'll say, and maybe maybe this is this is very optimistic, is there there are a lot of there are a lot of issues in the world, but um, real real growth has been very strong in this recovery. If you look at the kind of U.S. real GDP trend, we are almost, or um, if you might even say, completely back to 2008 to 2019 trend within kind of two years into the recovery. Right. So, I mean, yeah, you could say. Equities should be should be down more based on on kind of how many how much headwind they're facing and and kind of all the uncertainty in the markets. But also maybe that's that's a testament to the fact that the the economy is is recovered better than than what many people would have thought, despite all of this. <laughs> yeah, I can't any I can't offer any explanation for it, Joseph. But I just want to draw attention to that fact and underscore it, which is that risk premia for risk assets like equities and credit have not uh, uh they have not tightened that much so much of the destruction we see in the markets like if you look at hyg a high yield etf oh it's down seven percent year to date so much of that is purely interest rate component and has nothing to do with credit spreads high yield credit spreads are you know within a few you know a few points of record tights so uh i think it's not just the equity market i think it's the credit market uh, investment grade market. Every either the the interest rate uh, uh, futures market is way too hawkish and way too aggressive, or the credit market and the equities are, are I think too comfortable. I think I don't know which is which, but I, I know there's a disconnect there. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder if if just looking at the dollar strength, and we just have a lot of foreign capital just flooding here as a global safe haven. So. Yeah, I mean that's that's also probably a factor, right? I, I mean, there's U.S. equities are owned all over the world, right? And and they're maybe not great, but they're where where's the better place to be now? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess we'll find yeah. out when we have more tick data going forward in the mm-hmm. coming months. Right. Well, uh, I was going to say DC six months ago, the better place to be would be Europe, but uh, I, don't, I don't think that's the case anymore. <laughs> Um, DC, thank you so much for coming on Forward Guidance. I'm really glad that the audience got a, got a chance to meet you, hear your analysis. You are a very sharp guy, and you really know what you're talking about. And Joseph, thank you for for recommending DC um, and being my so co-host, much, as always. Guys, yeah. this, for you guys, this is the first ever face review of DC, so voila. Yes. I, I, I appreciate it a lot. It was it was a lot of fun. I'm definitely down to do it again if, if you guys want to. And yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks yes. for coming on, DC. Thanks so uh, much, guys, and thank guys, you for everyone who's watching. Make sure to follow DC, follow Jack, and fedguy.com. Follow, follow at fedguy, fedguy.com, and subscribe to the Blockworks YouTube channel. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Bye.